just frozen over. Yeah. So I have to start by asking, um, has anyone here ever seen the movie Gone with the Wind? Raise your hands. <laughs> so I know. <laughs> I actually have done this talk once in a while and people haven't seen it. Um, stop me if I mention something and, and you don't know or don't remember what it was. But I'm going to start. On the evening of December 15, 1939, in Atlanta, Georgia, this was the world premiere of Gone with the Wind. And I don't think Atlanta would have been more excited if the South had won the Civil War. <laughs> 700,000 people had booked hotel rooms. In a city of 300,000 at the time, the governor of Georgia proclaimed it a state holiday. Major stars of the movie had flown in, uh, including, uh, here's Olivia de Havilland, the producer David O. Selznick, some unknown actress, and Ann Rutherford here. Uh, everybody really wanted to see Clark Gable. He came on a separate plane. The only exceptions were the director, Victor Fleming, who hated David O. Selznick by this point. Um, actor Leslie Howard, he'd gone back to Britain to participate in the war effort. And Hattie McDaniel. Hattie McDaniel was not banned from the theater. However, Atlanta was segregated, and the Lowe's Grand Theater had no seating, sorry, the, the one I just showed, had no seating for African Americans. So she could have been on stage, but she couldn't have sat in the audience. Clark Gable actually said he wasn't going to go to the premiere if she didn't, and uh, she very graciously told him not to do that. In the days leading up to the premiere, there had been three days of parades and uh, balls. This is actually Clark Gable and Carol Lombard. How about that car? Wouldn't you love to have that car today? The Grand Theater exterior had been remade to resemble Twelve Oaks, the Wilkes family plantation. It only had 2,500 seats. So ticket prices, which were usually 50 cents, had been jacked up to $10. That's the equivalent of about $168 in today's money. Jockeying for tickets had been going on for months. The head of the Atlanta chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution was incensed at not getting enough tickets. And finally, an assistant snapped at her, wrong war. <laughs> Four Confederate veterans actually showed up for the premiere. This was uh, General James Reed Jones arriving. It was a massive success. When the opening credits appeared, everybody in the audience went silent. The audience wept seeing the Confederate wounded. You know, they cheered when Scarlett shot the Yankee deserter. <laughs> Huge success. Um, major stars of the movie were photographed with Margaret Mitchell, the author of the book. She's right there in the center. And it was front page news, certainly in Atlanta. And the movie went on to be a massive success around the country. There were two more premieres. This is one in New York. The New York premiere was so big, they had to have it showing at two theaters simultaneously. And then another premiere in Los Angeles. 
It received nearly universal acclaim, mostly excellent reviews. Here's the New York Times, which actually has a photograph of people clapping, just in case you don't get it. Um, Frank Nugent, who was the critic for the New York Times, said, we cannot get over the shock of not being disappointed. In its first week of theatrical release, the film grossed $945,000. In its first year, 14 million. It had cost altogether four and a quarter million to make the picture. Many theaters ran it for a year. In Atlanta, it ran for two years straight. By the end of its first general release, it had grossed $32 million. And it held that record until 1965. Anyone know what toppled it? Sound of music. Sound of music. Although, uh, well, anyway, um, I'll get back to that. It received a total, as we mentioned, of 13 Oscar nominations, and it won 10, eight of them competitive, two honorary. It has gone on to be one of the most successful films of all time. If we translate ticket sales since 1939 into contemporary dollars, it is still the world's all-time box office champion. It has listed on AFI's list of 100 years, 100 films, the 100 all-time best films, at number four, right behind Godfather, Casablanca, and Citizen Kane. They revised it, and I think it's number six, but I like this list better. Um, it has been translated into at least 25 different languages. It has spawned artifacts of every kind, costumes, Barbie dolls. Um, this, is my, this is my street cred. I was such a fan of Gone with the Wind as a kid. I got this doll. Here's what she looks like when she's brand new. My sister and I played with her so much, we almost destroyed her. Um, there are also... There's some great memorabilia that Janet brought up there. If anyone uh, wants to take a look at the uh, Gone with the Wind purse and fabulous Scarlett O'Hara face mask. Um, looking back, it almost seems obvious. How could this movie miss? It was based on, come back, Margaret Mitchell's 1936 best-selling book. This book sold 50,000 copies in its first day, despite the fact that it cost $3 at a time when most hardbacks cost 50 cents. It was the number one bestseller for almost two years straight. Um, in, according to many reports, of course it varies, it is the 20th century's all-time best-selling book. The movie itself was made in Technicolor at a time when the three-strip Technicolor process was still very, very new. Everybody was wanting to see Technicolor movies. And, and this is the point I want to explore tonight, it was seen as an achievement of really unprecedented historical accuracy. I know, I know. <laughs> but it is important to know. In, in the publicity and the media around the premiere, the Hollywood publicist made a great deal about Margaret Mitchell's credentials. She was born in Atlanta. Her father was the president of the Atlanta Historical Society. She did extensive 
extensive research when she wrote this book. She had all these files, and if anyone wrote her saying something was wrong, she would go to her files and send back to them her exact source, where she found it, page, date, everything. Um, the there's actually, believe it or not, she even researched the weather at the time of Sherman's arrival in Atlanta to get that right. No less an authority than Douglas Southall Freeman praised her for her accuracy. He might not have been entirely unbiased, but still. In the publicity around the movie, the press releases, the souvenir booklets, the programs, producers emphasized that Selznick had been just as fastidious. He had hired an Atlanta expert on the Old South, Wilbur Kurtz, to ensure everything was accurate. Um, the studio really publicized how accurate Selznick had been, you know. He had to confirm if oral thermometers were used in Civil War hospitals. Um, even the under oh sorry here's Margaret Mitchell sorry the underpinnings worn by the actors the costumes were extremely accurate this is a press photograph of hoop skirts and if you know fashions you might know these are hoop skirts specifically of the late 1860s in the early 1860s they were bell shaped by the late deck part of the decade they were flat in the front and more elliptical with the fullness in the back and then it moved into the bustle era someone recently came upon this great fashion plate from Godey's ladies magazine this is an actual period fashion drawing and thought it looks kind of familiar went back to gone with the wind and realized it had to have been the inspiration for this dress that Scarlett wears when she returns to Tara. They're just too close. Here's the Godey's Ladies Magazine drawing, and here is costume designer Walter Plunkett's drawing. Walter Plunkett, by the way, did not receive the Academy Award for Best Costume Design. You know why? There was no Academy Award for Best Costume Design in 1939. So every time I hear the, the number of Oscars, I always think, well, you know. There are more Oscars available today than there were. Even though Tara was not completely built, they did create an entire schematic of Tara. This is the drawing. There's the house down here with a lawn next to it, the slave quarters going out for the back, you've got the hogs, everything. Um, just so that placement of people and lighting and everything else would be accurate. One result of all this emphasis on accuracy is that mainstream critics and a lot of viewers in the 1930s and today tended to accept that what they were seeing was an accurate representation of what happened in the South in the 1860s, in Clayton County, Georgia specifically. Clayton County being the area that Margaret Mitchell said Gone with the Wind was set in. A critic for the Richmond News Leader actually said in his review, the real thing, that is the real history of the South, has been painted for us. I've seen numerous references to Southerners saying that they were shown Gone with the Wind in their classrooms when they were studying the Civil War and Reconstruction. Today, however, things have changed a little bit. Since it premiered over all these decades, 75 years as of last December, 
it's come under pretty serious criticism for its many historical inaccuracies. And you don't have to look very far to find them. Some of them are pretty modest. When Gerald O'Hara arrives at Terra shouting that the Lee has surrendered and the war is over, someone on IMDb pointed out, actually the surrender of Lee's troops in, of Northern Virginia probably didn't actually affect Georgia because the Georgia state troops did not surrender until a month later. He probably wouldn't have been this excited. But other of these inaccuracies are pretty major. Ashley at one point says, oh, he was going to free his slaves anyway. And no mention of how he's planning to sustain this lifestyle at Twelve Oaks without um, slaves. And I should note, many of these inaccuracies were fully well known to the filmmakers. They weren't stupid. Selznick actually sent researchers to Clayton County, Georgia, the setting I mentioned, and they reported back there were no plantations that they could find that were anywhere near as big as what he was envisioning Terra and Twelve Oaks. Certainly none of them had big white columns out front. And Selznick said, doesn't matter. He wanted Terra to have big white columns in the front, as it appears in the picture here. Fun trivia about uh, this particular set. It is only a false front. It was built on the back lot of Selznick International Studios. Interiors were all done on sound stages. The trees, like a lot of Hollywood trees, were constructed, usually starting with telephone poles, shaped with paper mache and painted. They had to bring in crushed red tiles and mix them with the dirt to get that wonderful red earth of terra that they make a lot about. And the house is not even symmetrical. The front door was built off-center. Do you see how it's appearing between two columns here? That's because they intended it would be shot from this angle. Um, and it would be centered if you look at it from this angle. If you look at it head-on, as it rarely appears, you can see how off-center the front door actually is on that. I love trivia like that. Twelve Oaks Plantation was not even built at all. All they built was the front door. The rest of it, everything you see in this picture, other than the carriages and the horses, is a matte painting. They used quite a bit of matte painting. Most of the ceilings that you see are paintings. Uh, many of the buildings and the backgrounds that you see are paintings. Um, Margaret Mitchell actually laughed. She said, she thought of Twelve Oaks as a modestly big house, but Selznick created this mansion. And she wrote to a friend, we were hard pressed not to laugh when we saw Twelve Oaks. There was an exhibit of David O. Selznick's papers at the University of Texas at the end of last year. And I came upon this fabulous memo from Selznick. He was writing to his director and costume designer and everyone else saying he was determined that historical accuracy should not interfere with the beauty of the production. Be very careful, he said, because the first people who will complain about a lack of beauty in the final product are the Southerners that were trying to satisfy with historical accuracy. So he knew that he wasn't going to let historical accuracy trump everything, specifically in the visuals. 
he really wanted to conform to this existing vision of the American South as a land of wealth and elegance and gentility. And this view, this whole idea of the antebellum South that way, it was a pretty well-established tradition by 1939. This is not something Selznick came up with. Also, what he did not come up with, and equally inaccurate over the years, is the film's portrayal of the African-American slaves, and particularly the relationship between blacks and whites. Specifically, the view that it creates of loyalty from the slaves and reciprocal affection between the slaves and the masters. For all the research that Margaret Mitchell did, and she did a lot, she read a lot from the Moonlight and Magnolia school of the late 19th century. Almost everything she read was written by a white Southerner. She read very little with the Northern influence. There were 101 slave narratives written between 1760 and about and 1865. There's no evidence she read any of them. And if you've read any of them, you know they paint a pretty different portrait of slavery than what you see in Gone with the Wind. Um, the movie really doesn't attempt to grapple in any serious way with any of the real problems in the South that were created by the, the slavery system. The slave owners in Gone with the Wind are primarily decent, benevolent people. The first time that we see Ellen O'Hara appear, she's coming home from caring for poor white trash. See what a caring person she is? Cocktail party trivia for you. Barbara O'Neill, who played Ellen O'Hara, was born in 1910. At the time of filming, she was four years older than Vivian Lee, who was born in 1913. How's that? Good acting on Barbara O'Neill's part, I would say. Um, similarly, in terms of this benevolence, Gerald O'Hara tells Scarlett, you must be gentle with the darkies. So the whites are very um, good-hearted. The slaves, in turn, are very devoted, very loving. We see them picking cotton, and they're, you know, all they're doing is arguing who gets to call quitting time at Tara. We see the slaves uh, braving a rainstorm to catch the last chicken in Atlanta for the white folks. This is Eddie Anderson, by the way, who played Uncle Peter. Uh, Mammy and Prissy and Pork stay with the family through the war. We don't see really much of the slaves who worked in the fields other than Big Sam. The black characters are really unfailingly loyal. Even the foolish ones, they are, you know, faithful to the family, and it, they probably couldn't survive much on their own. Even Prissy, this great portrait created by Butterfly McQueen, she's whining and not the smartest, but even she stays through all the, the hard times. Margaret Mitchell was actually pretty disappointed in the portrayal of Prissy. She always felt her Prissy was shiftless, but not stupid. Um, and, and really, the, the change in interpretation probably owes a lot to the film's wanting to stay within the, the traditional framework of using black servant characters for comic relief. And, and in fact, really, the black characters are all pretty much set within the traditional stereotypes. The demeaned and the marginalized black was a pretty common 
staple of, of American movies. But we should remember, a number of the white characters were also reduced to stereotypes. Belle Watling, she's pretty much the hooker with the heart of gold that you see in westerns all the time. Aunt Pity Pat is a notably one-dimensional character and played primarily for comedy. And it's also important to note, Selznick removed the worst depictions of black characters, including numerous uses of the N-word, which were all over the novel. And the movie really gives a lot of the blacks more depth and presence than they had had in other contemporary movies. Most black characters are, you know, fairly weakly characterized, but Manny and Prissy, they're among the most memorable characters. Can anyone give Prissy's best line? Don't know nothing about I don't know nothing about birth and no babies. People who haven't seen the movie know that line. Uh, Manny is one of the most sympathetic and beloved characters in this movie, and she does have some power. Clearly, she runs a lot at Tara, and clearly the O'Haras have great affection for her, as does Rhett Butler. Remember what Rhett brings her as a present? Her red taffeta petticoat that she wears and likes. The scene where Mammy is explaining to Melanie about the fight between Scarlet and Rhett, um, it's, a, it's a very moving and powerful scene. And in fact, Hattie McDaniel became the first African-American performer to, to win an, an Academy Award. And there have not been a lot of them since. It took 24 years after Hattie McDaniel before another African-American performer received an Academy Award. That would be... 1963. Um, Hattie McDaniel's performance really did help to quiet a lot of the criticism that the film faced from the African-American community when it first came out. And McDaniel famously said, she said, why should I complain about making $7,000 to play a maid? If I didn't, I'd be making $7 a week to be a maid. Um, it's hard to argue with that. On the other hand, of course, Hattie McDaniel and Butterfly McQueen really were from then on stereotyped as um, maids and they really, it didn't really open up many alternative roles for black women. Butterfly McQueen actually finally decided she was no longer going to play any of the handkerchief head roles and uh, with that her Hollywood career pretty much ended. And in the end Many African Americans in 1939, and many people today, think that the tinkerings with details didn't really alter the fact that fundamentally this film interprets um, African Americans in a, in a fairly um, stereotypical, traditional kind of a way. In any case, do all these historical inaccuracies really matter? I mean. This is fiction, right? David O. Selznick did not set out to create a documentary of the American Civil War, except that he made a big deal about how historically accurate he was being. And many have taken this movie as history. So yeah, on a basic level, of course this movie matters because so many Americans get their, their primary exposure or even their only <laughs> exposure to American history through movies. 
And lest we think we've moved beyond the difficulty of discerning between fiction and documentary, think about how many people have taken the movie JFK as the story of what happened with the Kennedy assassination. Um, or have said that 12 Years a Slave uh, lays bears the, bear the tr brutal truth of American slavery. That was the headline of a Dallas review of 12 Years a Slave. Regardless of how true or false any of these films actually are, what's interesting is the public's inability to really distinguish between fiction and, real and, and his history in, in movies which is particularly problematic when we consider that this movie takes such a subjective stance towards its topic. Um, there's a wonderful book, Causes Lost, Won, and Forgotten, Gary Gallagher's great book about Civil War movies. And he lays out these four main interpretive traditions that Americans have used to understand the Civil War. There is the Union cause, that this was a fight to retain the Union. There was the Emancipation cause, that this was the fight to free uh, um, slaver, slaves. The Reconciliation cause, this was a movement to, to reconcile the two sides of the country. And of course, the Lost cause, this cause of the Noble South that was defeated by overwhelming odds. Taking this framework, pretty obvious where this picture falls squarely in the lost cause tradition. Um, in fact, someone said this is the apotheosis of lost cause ideology. We see the Confederacy's cause is noble, its leaders are exemplars of chivalry, defeated by the Union armies who have this numerical and industrial force. Um, historian Catherine Clinton said, this movie is really Confederate porn, when you think about it. <laughs> and just in case somehow you miss it in the movie itself, the filmmakers added this prologue, remember this? You know, there was a land of cavaliers and cotton fields called the Old South where um, gallantry took its last bow. It's framing for you how it wants you to view the rest of the picture. One of the, and, and just in case you don't get it, let me see if I can get this to work. One of the earliest in-depth discussions of the war happens during the barbecue at Twelve Oaks, um, when the characters immediately lay out the lost cause. So let's see if I can get this to run. Is it going to go for me? Darn it! Darn it! Ah! All right. Talk amongst yourselves for a second. <laughs> hang on, hang on, hang on. I'll get it. I might need my assistant to uh, help me. Not right now, not right now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's just do this. Yes. All right, here we go. Why, 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 why don't I tell you? That's too loud. After being fired on the Yankee Rascals and Fort Sumter, we've got to fight. Don't worry about that. Slow moving, guys.
Carrollton twins in the background, they said, you know, you can, you can tell they're twins because they're wearing the same outfit. <laughs> How many guys who are in college wear the same outfit as their sibling? And they don't even look alike. They were the Tarleton boys. Selznick couldn't find twins who were both good actors. Um, you know, the whole line about, you know, what does that matter to a gentleman, you know, that we don't have a cannon factory? I mean, this is clear lost cause. Um, description and so we've got right at the start of this picture this image of the Confederates as these underdogs who are gonna mount a gallant fight against overwhelming odds and the limitless resources of the North and then this is gonna be hammered home for the next three hours and 45 minutes of this picture three and a half hours um, as we go along Scene after scene plays on this. And once you start watching, you start to really realize this is the picture, a picture from the scene where hundreds gather in Atlanta to read the rolls of the dead from the Battle of Gettysburg. And uh, poor Mrs. Mead is saying, my son won't need these socks. I'm knitting for him. The Atlanta hospitals are filled with dead and wounded. Uh, fun trivia for you, in the hospital scene, you hear one soldier saying, um, and, and, and my brother Jeff, I told you about Jeff, right? We ain't heard from Jeff in a long time. We ain't heard of him from Bull Run. That's the voice of Cliff Edwards, later famous as Jiminy Cricket in the movie Pinocchio. And speaking of inaccuracies, people who are... Um, you know, the type who typically wins Civil War trivia contests might note that no Confederate would refer to it as the Battle of Bull Run, right? Manassas. What is it? Manassas. Manassas, right? Another inaccuracy. There we go. Uh, the city of Atlanta suffers huge devastation. The residents are forced to flee like rats. The ones who stay sink deeper and deeper into poverty. The film used 27 versions of this purple calico dress. This is its first appearance when uh, Scarlett and Melanie are working in the hospital. Note, by the way, the positions of the shadows on the back wall. The extras creating the shadow didn't line up perfectly, so Melanie's shadow is at a completely different angle from Melanie's actual head. But as the picture goes on, you see Scarlett's dress get rattier and rattier. They roughed it up with sandpaper and um, uh, steel brushes and things like that. Atlanta ultimately is pretty much burned to the ground. Um, people are forced to flee. And in one of filmdom's most vivid scenes, Thousands of wounded soldiers are seen lying on the ground moaning as Scarlett picks her way through them looking for Dr. Mead to deliver Melanie's baby. And the camera member pulls back and you see these thousands of wounded. Selznick wanted 2,000 wounded soldiers on the ground, but central casting could only come up with about 800. So to create the additional wounded men, he of course, 
use CGI, right? No. He used dummies. Um, in, in one of the, the most famous bits of trivia about this picture, he had dummies placed on the ground, told each extra to lie down next to a dummy and reach under for a stick or a string and furtively manipulate the dummy so its arms and things would be, would be moving. Um, and let's see if I can get it to go. Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. They had to build a special crane. Do you see this construction crane here? Uh, no cranes in Hollywood were big enough to lift the camera up 85 feet into the air. So the crane that they used was from a construction site, and then they rigged up a platform to hold one of these Technicolor cameras. These things were huge. They were the size of a refrigerator altogether, so it's pretty remarkable how high they got it. All right. Let's see if we can get this one to go. Oh, come back, come back. <laughs> I want to play this. Note the dummies, but also um, pay attention to the music, because I'll talk about that in a minute. been attributed to a lot of people, but most often it's attributed to John Marsh, uh, Margaret Mitchell's husband at the premiere, when he leaned over and said to her, if we'd had that many soldiers, we would have won the war. <laughs> Such an iconic image that it's been parodied in The Simpsons when they get a trampoline and Marge comes out in the backyard and there's a wounded kid who fell off the trampoline and the camera pulls back and there's like all these other kids and then it pulls back further and there's more wounded kids. They don't mention Gone with the Wind, but it, it really points at how embedded in our popular culture this, this movie is. And it's important to note that alongside all these depictions of southern hardships and the underdog struggles, the movie also avoids a single depiction of any Confederate atrocities. There's no mention of things like the massacre at Fort Pillow by Confederate soldiers. Uh, the, the movie only vaguely mentions that Ashley was imprisoned at a prisoner of war camp. Perhaps that was to avoid raising the scepter of Andersonville prison, the notorious Confederate prison for Yankee soldiers. So we've got these strong images of Southern suffering right alongside an 
absence of Confederate atrocities. And then, running alongside all this, we have these recurring images of Yankee soldiers as these forces of destruction. The biggest presence of the Yankee army in this movie is the devastation they leave behind. This, is, this actually looks like Andersonville, doesn't it? This is the, fee, the, the, the ground over which Scarlet has to travel to get back to Terra. Um, you know, there's dead bodies and all this detritus of the battles, all of this caused by those Yankees. When they get to Twelve Oaks, it's completely destroyed and our color scheme has switched to gray. Neither viewers in 1939 nor today missed the implication that Union soldiers are these forces of destruction and death. The daughters of the Union veterans actually complained that the film wrecked the reputation of General Sherman. They passed a resolution saying, quote, it is unfair that our boys and girls should be given such a distorted view of what actually took place. And you will know, in the movie scenes that are set during the war itself, when Yankee soldiers do appear, they are often deserters. Most famously, the deserter who robs and then attempts to rape Scarlet. And she, of course, is forced to kill him because look how our pure Southern women have to turn into murderers just to protect themselves from, from the Yankees. And let me go one step further. Not only is this a very subjective portrait of the American Civil War, the apotheosis of the lost cause, it's also a very powerfully moving and emotional one. Selznick, you know, he did not set out to make a great movie that was the apotheosis of lost cause ideology. He set out to make a movie that would make a lot of money and win a lot of awards and all of this. Part of the way he did that was to just imbue this movie with things that would evoke really powerful emotions. Let me mention a few of them. Visual spectacle. This movie is laden with lush colors, eye-popping sets, especially in the early scenes of the Old South. This this is uh, this lush, romantic vision of the backyard at Twelve Oaks. It's actually Bush Gardens in California that they rented for the day. None of the movie was filmed in the South, with the exception of the images behind the opening credits, and there's one steamboat that passes through when Rhett and Scarlett are on their honeymoon. Other than that, it was all done in California and the, the counties around Culver City. And yet, um, many Americans have trouble picturing the antebellum South as anything but this region overflowing with beauty and um, just visual appeal. And the contrast, of course, between these scenes and what you see later of that devastation, it's really powerful emotionally. Of course we feel moved that so much beauty and elegance could be absolutely shattered. Um, there was actually a great quote from the San Francisco Chronicle that said, oh, it's just astonishing how completely this gracious patrician life of the Old South was destroyed, never to be reclaimed. Another way that this picture taps into really powerful emotions 
is the dynamic portrayal of Scarlett O'Hara. Um, in fact, for many, she is the primary symbol of the main theme of the picture, which is survival. Anyone know the quote that goes with this image? God is my witness, I'll never be hungry again. Um, more than just a love story, this is a story about the survival of a woman trying to keep her home and her family in the midst of turmoil. And when did this picture open? 1939, at the end of the Great Depression, when many Americans were still struggling with the, the issue of how to keep home and family together. It really tapped into these deep emotions, um, American feelings about triumph over hardship, but especially in the Depression. And Vivian Lee came in for nearly universal acclaim for her portrait of Scarlett O'Hara. Um, you might recall that the casting of Scarlett O'Hara very famously took two years. Selznick wanted an unknown. He undertook a national call to um, find someone. They interviewed 1,400 hopefuls. In one day in Atlanta, 500 girls showed, out, showed up. It cost him $100,000 and yielded almost nothing. They only found two girls who were both in um, moderate parts. Um, Alicia Rett, who played India Wilkes, Ashley Wilkes' sister, and Maybelle Merriweather, who's a girl who is dating a zouave. But, more fun cocktail party trivia for you, there are three credited cast members still alive, and one of them is Mary Anderson, who played Maybelle Merriweather. Um, one of the others is Mickey Coon, who played Bo Wilkes, Melanie and Ashley's son. And the other one? Olivia de Havilland. Olivia de Havilland. She was born in 1916, and she is still alive. And ironically, she played Melanie, right? Of the four principal characters in this film, Scarlett, Rhett, Melanie, and Ashley, which of the four is the one who dies in the picture? Melanie. Melanie. Isn't that ironic? Who would have thought? Anyway, they could not find an unknown. Every studio in Hollywood sent in their recommendations. Early frontrunners were Miriam Hopkins and Tallulah Bankhead, who were both Southerners. Southerners really wanted a Southern girl in the part, but they were both too old. Betty Davis desperately wanted the part, uh, but Warner Brothers would only release her in a package deal with Errol Flynn as Rhett Butler. And uh, both Selznick and Betty Davis thought that was a horrible idea, and Errol Flynn was a terrible actor. <laughs> Betty Davis said, uh, Errol Flynn always thought he was a bad actor, and I really admire his honesty. Uh, Catherine Hepburn also desperately wanted the part, but she had had four or five major flops. She was box office poison. Uh, Norma Shearer was MGM's grand dame, but she was considered, it was considered not ladylike enough for her. The closest Selznick could get to his ideal was Paulette Goddard. Paulette Goddard was among the 31 actresses who were screen test, tested for the part. Uh, the legend goes that she was offered a contract in November of 1938, but it was withdrawn because she could not produce a 
marriage license to show she was actually married to Charlie Chaplin, who, close your ears if you're very sensitive, she was living with. So allegedly, Paulette Goddard was out of the running. And then, of course, the story goes, they had to start filming. They had to start filming because they could only get Clark Gable from January to the end of June of 1939. They had to start in January of 39. So in Decem on December 10th, the art director, um, uh, Lyle Wheeler, told Selznick, let's burn up some of the old sets on the back lot, these King Kong and other sets, we'll burn them to the ground, film the burning of Atlanta, and then we can build the sets for Terra. And that's what they did. They put kerosene pipes through the buildings and uh, flames shot up 300 feet in the air. People in Culver City started calling the fire department to say, you know, this Selznick International Studios is burning down. And allegedly, in the midst of this, by the way, people who are um, likely to win Civil War trivia contests might know this is not the burning of the city of Atlanta by Sherman, of course. It's the Confederates burning their own warehouses as they retreated in advance of <laughs> Sherman, right? But um, in the midst of all of this, among the visitors who showed up to watch was a woman circled here, uh, Vivian Lee, accompanied by Myron Selznick, David's brother, who was an agent, and her agent, and he tapped his brother on the shoulder and said, David, here's your scarlet. We do know that David O. Selznick had watched some of Vivian Lee's movies before this, but nonetheless, it was seeing her there that led to her screen test, which is what led to her getting the part in December of um, 1938. Third way, I would say, that this, this movie really taps into our emotions is the way Selznick tweaked the ending of the picture, which means it's quiz time. Ready for this? I'll read it if you can't read it um, on the screen. What is the final line of Gone with the Wind? Is it A, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. B, why land's the only thing worth fighting for, worth dying for, because it's the only thing that lasts. C, after all, tomorrow is another day. Or D, well, nobody's perfect. Oh, you're good. You're good. D is from Some Like It Hot. Very good. The line D, if you know Some Like It Hot, that's, that's the final line of that. Remember on the speedboat? In any case, the final line is Vivian Lee saying tomorrow's another day. The book closes with Rhett leaving and really Scarlett is alone by herself in this big house. Selznick changed this. He added this montage of voices telling her that Tara is where she gets her strength. It's land. That's, what, that's what's really the heart. And she looks up tearfully, and she's determined to go back to Tara and think about it another day. Far more hopeful and resurgent than the book. So when you leave the picture, it's not on a downer. You know, Rhett still has left. It's not changing the action of the book. But there's this kind of hopeful strength as you leave that I think is, again, part of the way this picture really works on our emotions in, a, in an important, important way. Um, wait, do I have it? The, there's been a lot of ink spilled, of course, on the line, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. First of all, in the book, it's just, my dear, I don't give a damn. It is believed to be David O. Selznick, who 
wrote half the script anyway, who added the frankly. And isn't it that nice little bit of poetry? It just adds a little bit. But more importantly was the word damn. Uh, according to the Hayes office, the official self-censorship board for movies, damn was forbidden. It had appeared in earlier movies, but it was forbidden. Selznick had his employees come up with numerous recommendations. Among them um, are things like, um, my dear, my indifference is boundless. Uh, my dear, I just don't give a hoot. Or, um, my dear, I don't give a continental. I don't think so. There is actually a legend that Selznick did film Clark Gable saying, my dear, I just don't care. But he did not tell the Hayes office. What he did is talk to the Hayes office and said, if you look in the Oxford English Dictionary, damn is a vulgarism, not an oath. And he peppered them to the point that eventually in November of 38, the Hayes Code did amend its code to say, hell and damn are forbidden except where essential and required. Whereupon Selznick said, damn is essential and required in this case, and all was well. Fourth reason I think this movie succeeds so powerfully is it's just a darn good romance. The chemistry between Scarlett O'Hara and Rhett Butler is really powerful. Unlike the casting of Vivian Lee, the casting of Clark Gable was something that many, most people pushed for right from the front. There were few other contenders like Ronald Coleman, but not really. The only one who didn't really want Clark Gable in this picture Clark Gable. was Clark Gable. Well, and Margaret Mitchell, but she was uh, didn't want anything to do with anything to make of the movie. Gable didn't want to be in a woman's picture. He was the biggest star at MGM. He only agreed to be in the movie because MGM gave him a financial bonus that was sufficient for him to pay off his wife, Rhea, so she would grant him a divorce so he could marry his real love, who was? Carol Lombard. Tradition actually holds that Lee and Gable were not especially close. There's all these legends that, you know, she thought he had terrible breath from his false teeth. Um, but there's no denying, there is powerful chemistry between those two. I mean, two beautiful people who can't deny their attraction to each other. It's, it's very engaging. Side note. Like Clark Gable, Leslie Howard was very reluctant to be in this picture. He didn't want to play another in this line of kind of watery intellectuals he'd been playing. He felt, probably correctly, that at the age of 45, he was too old for the part. He only agreed because Selznick agreed to let him produce the picture intermezzo. But even then, he never bothered to read the book. I love this picture because this is the only time Leslie Howard probably even looked at the book. <laughs> never even pretended to do a Southern accent and gave a pretty lackluster per performance. Leslie Howard was actually an excellent horseman. He had been in a volunteer cavalry unit during World War I and Selznick wanted to include some horsemanship scenes, take advantage of that, but they were cut for time. And that makes Gone with the Wind the only Civil War movie that I'm aware of without a single battle sequence in it. 
There's this montage that you see of marching soldiers. That's about as close as you're going to get to a battle in, in this movie. Fifth reason I think this movie works really, really well has to do with music. Can anyone hum the song that goes with this? Ah, hey, you got it! Wait, let me see if I can get it. Recognize it? Yeah, who doesn't? People who have not even seen the movie know this song. We got it. Now it'll be stuck in our heads all night. Um, that is really a tribute to the powerful achievement of Max Steiner, the composer for this um, picture. Music is absolutely critical to this picture's success. By the way, this image is four different images. There's the matte painting of the tree, I'm sorry, the matte painting of Tara, the photograph of the sky, that's a photograph tree, and then film of the two live actors in there. And they brought in mathematicians to figure out the speed at which each of the four images recedes as the camera pulls back. It's phenomenal. Um, here's Max Steiner right here. Um, he created a score that is two hours and 36 minutes long, the longest he ever wrote for a picture. Selznick loved music, and he told Steiner, just go mad with the schmaltz in the last three reels. But Steiner did more than that. Um, he actually drew on um, some familiar music. Quiz time. Which of the following tunes did Max Steiner use in his score to Gone with the Wind? A, Beautiful Dreamer, B, Dixie, C, Marching Through Georgia, or D, Bonnie Blue Flag? All of them. All of them? Bonnie Blue Flag? Recognize any of them? Yeah. Oh, you're good. The answer is all of the above. Um, he drew on both Confederate patriotic songs and traditional American folk songs, and really created this pretty richly textured soundtrack. If you noticed in the scene of the Confederate wounded, he has this variety of songs going through, ending with uh, Reveille, um, very powerful. By the way, when Vivian Lee arrived in Atlanta, there was a band and they started playing Dixie, and Vivian Lee, who was British, said, um, oh, isn't that nice? They're playing the song that they made for the movie. How nice of them. <laughs> By the way, when Vivian Lee was first cast, you know, there was a lot of Southerners who were incensed that they couldn't have found a Southerner. They had to hire a Brit to play this famous Southern woman. And someone, and I think it, it might have been Luella Parsons? Someone, um, tell me if you know, said, much better a Brit than a Yankee to play Scarlet. Um, and finally, I want to suggest that among the reasons that this film um, was so powerful and did so well in the 30s was that it is unquestionably racist and rabidly pro-Southern from our point of view, but it avoided some of the more excessive... Um, racism of, of the book and of earlier films. Selznick cut out all references, explicit references, to the Ku Klux Klan. In the book, Ashley and Frank Kennedy are explicitly leaders of the Ku Klux Klan. They lead a raid on Shantytown in retribution for Scarlett's attempted rape. Mitchell was a powerful defender of the Klan. She thought the Klan was providing needed protection, especially for Southern uh, women. 
She wrote, I have not written anything about the Klan that is not common knowledge to every Southerner. David O. Selznick, on the other hand, was not Southern, and he was Jewish. And he knew very well that the Klan of the 1920s and the 30s, unlike the Klan of the 1870s, harassed Jews as well as blacks. He did not want to romanticize the Klan, and he actually was very ready to listen to the NAACP. He, you know, he wrote this memo after he was a huge memo writer. He had just discovered Benzedrine when he was writing this, working on this picture, and he was like in a, you know, work until two or three a.m. on a craze. But he wrote to his screenwriter and said, "We have to make sure that the blacks come out on the right side of the ledger." So he excised any reference to the KKK, removed any uses of the N-word. Of course, today, most people know they're writing for the KKK, but still it's not mentioned. And however painful the portrayals of African-American characters might be, the roles are being played by African-American actors. And this is only 25, less than 25 years since Birth of a Nation which had used white actors in blackface. Um, blacks in this film are not marauding thugs and rapists. When Scarlett is attacked in Shantytown, she's actually attacked by a white man. Um, she's ra uh, who, What's his name? Yakima Canute? Is that right? Yeah, Yakima Canute, the great stunt man, was playing the attacker in Shantytown. And who rescues her? Big Sam. It's a black man who rescues her. This is a small but a pretty significant tweak in, in the portrayal of African Americans. Um, and finally, Selznick really toned down the interpretation of Reconstruction. If you read the book, you know there is one interpretation of Reconstruction. It is a deliberate and aggressive campaign by the North to destroy economically whatever Sherman and Grant had not destroyed militarily. Selznick toned this down. In Reconstruction, the villains are the carpetbaggers and the scalawags. It's not the federal government or even the Union soldiers. Uh, Bruce Chadwick actually noted that the enemy, the Union soldiers, they're strangely absent during the Civil War. Um, clearly, someone killed the Tarleton boys at Gettysburg. Someone killed Dr. Meade's son, who won't need the socks anymore. Someone wounded the men lying outside the Atlanta Railroad Station. But we never actually see Northern soldiers doing anything other than the, the deserters. The only bluecoats who really appear in the movie um, other than the deserters, are during Reconstruction, and they're pretty understanding. Uh, when the um, Ashley is pretending to be drunk and they come stumbling home, the officer looking for Ashley, he's, you know, he clearly knows something's up, but he chooses not to do anything about it. When we see Northern soldiers, um, they're wandering the streets of Atlanta, not really harassing anyone. These guys are just hanging out down here, um, part of the scenery as Atlanta's being rebuilt. In fact, Scarlett understands 
the way others like Melanie don't, that the North and the South are going to have to cooperate to bring about reconciliation and the, the economic rebuilding of the South. Margaret Mitchell said at one point she intended Melanie to be the heroine of her book, but Scarlett just kind of took over and ran away with it uh, on her own. So let me finish up by um, asking again, does this film really matter? It's been 75 years. Does Gone with the Wind matter in the way Americans think about the, the Civil War? Well, first of all, I think all this obsessive pointing out, which I do, of the historical inaccuracies in the picture, I think they, they kind of miss the point. I mean, does it does it change our understanding of the Civil War to know whether oral thermometers were used in Atlanta hospitals? Or <laughs> is an 18-inch waist even possible? <laughs> Vivian Lee's waist was 25 inches, which is tiny, but it's not 18 inches. Does it matter? I mean, clearly this movie gets some many historical facts wrong. But even if it got every single detail right. Is that going to make it automatically a great film? I don't think so. The way I think about it, I think this movie's depiction of the, the devastating experiences that Southerners went through as a result of this war, um, it's deeply moving. And this unfolding story of defeat and loss and the struggle to rebuild it really successfully documents the, the feelings and the experiences of many Southerners, white Southerners. The accuracy that this movie achieves, it's not necessarily that of obsessive historical detail. It's accuracy of a kind of mythic nature. And, and that's where I think this film belongs. It is extremely useful to us, even today, as a myth a document of what white Southerners especially <coughs> wanted to believe um, in the 1930s about the antebellum and post-war South. It documents very well this powerful desire for a time of simpler race relations, presents a very romanticized view of a world that really actually never existed, and and I think the survival of this romantic, mythic version of the Old South owes a lot, not only to Hollywood in general, but to Gone with the Wind specifically as its ultimate film version. There is today, you know, 75 years after this film debuted, this long tradition in which we think of the Old South as this rural, agrarian community of, you know, courtly squires and happy pickaninnies. Americans still think about the Old South as this land of dogwoods heavy with blossoms and white columns and hoop skirts far bigger than anyone wore on a daily basis. We are so intimately familiar with this film. It has been satirized and parodied over and over from The Muppet Show. Here's Miss Piggy as Scarlet. Uh, this is a British show, French and Saunders, doing the corset scene. Here's The Simpsons again with Homer going on a diet and he says, as God is my witness, I'll always be hungry again. Um, and most famously, I'm glad you mention it. When Gone with the Wind premiered on television for the first time in 1976, it inspired Carol Burnett. Oh, 
said, so many people know that dress, he's afraid that his tombstone is going to say, Pop Mackey, designer of the Carol Burnett curtain dress. That dress, by the way, is so famous, it is today in the Smithsonian. The actual green curtain dress from Gone with the Wind that Vivian Lee wore is at the University of Texas Harry Ransom Center, believe it or not. This is, I took this photograph last month. It's um, part of the David O. Selznick papers. Can you see it's actually turning brown? It's very, very sad how it's, how it's faded. So we can immediately see the impact of this movie by recognizing how many later texts are responding to it. And you see Gone with the Wind referred to either directly or indirectly in plot lines and character names, character types. Do you remember the miniseries North and South, John Jake's miniseries? Um, clearly references or, or at least um, bringing up the image of Gone with the Wind. Um, these are the Azalea Trail Girls in Alabama who came under criticism in 2009 because an African American said their dresses are just too reminiscent of Gone with the Wind and all the pain of that. Last year, or a year and a half ago, when the movie 12 Years a Slave came out, reviews of that movie referred over and over to Gone with the Wind as this kind of touchstone against which Americans know and understand slavery. Um, here's a scene from Gone with, uh, 12 Years a Slave. Uh, here's a couple of samples from different reviews. Quote, Hollywood movies have come a long way since the days of Mammy and Gone with the Wind. Or from the New York Times, quote, the period trapping so beloved by Hollywood, the paternalistic gentry with their pretty plantations and their genteel manners and all that fiddle-dee-dee rest, here they're the backdrop for an outrage. End quote. And in Time Magazine, Henry Louis Gates said, quote, I felt like I hadn't seen anything like it before. The realism and the brutality were intense. How have we managed to go from Gone with the Wind to something like that? End quote. I, I think this movie is great, but speaking of historical inaccuracy, Here's the house that the actual Edwin Epps, played by Michael Fassbender, lived in. He was a real person. The house was photographed, I think, in the 20s, but nonetheless, you can see what it looked like. And here is Felicity Plantation, which was Edwin Epps' home in the movie uh, 12 Years a Slave. So, uh, not, this is not to detract from 12 Years a Slave at all, but just to, to point out that when we're talking about historical accuracy and inaccuracy, we're not talking about 12 Years a Slave as a wholly non-fictionalized movie. Yeah, I mean, isn't that the truth? I mean, really, can you see a white plantation house like this with columns and not think of Gone with the Wind? 
Um, Gone with the Wind was not the first movie to use traditions and stereotypes of the Old South or the Lost Cause, but it used them in very imaginative and very powerful ways to really create this mythic epic of the Old South and, and its experiences during the Civil War. That's why it's the model text against which writers and filmmakers are always drawing. And even more than that, that's pretty close to what Margaret Mitchell seems to have intended. She was very defensive about any criticism, um, but she did admit that her book was explicitly the Southern response to Uncle Tom's Cabin. She wanted to refute the impression of the South that people had gotten from reading and seeing Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, she wanted to defend the South from 75 years of attack by things like this. So maybe it's not that surprising that Uncle Tom's Cabin became kind of the reference point for white writing about slavery, so has Gone with the Wind become this kind of reference point for representations of the South before and after the Civil War. It's how we, um, it's our starting point for thinking about slaveocracy and uh, the middle, the Southern white middle class experience of the war. Even though we know today that only 6% of Georgians were actually members of the slaveocracy, the slave owners who owned 20 slaves or more, 60% of Georgians did not own a single slave. So let me wrap up by saying this. I think it's telling that today there are many, many people who are devoted to this film. But there are just as many who vocally question um, this picture. And maybe that's exactly where this movie should be, at the center of controversy. I think we need the people who want to dress up like Scarlett O'Hara. I think this is this woman who gives tours in Atlanta, or I mean, not, in Clayton County, of um, the, the sites of Gone with the Wind. We need the people to recognize how, how incredibly able this picture is to tap into our emotions. Um, we need the people who get the little flip in their stomach when, we, when they see Rhett Butler at the bottom of the stairs um, to understand what this movie did so well um, as, a, as a work of art in a lot of ways. But we also need the protesters. This was an early protest outside a theater with picket signs saying, $1.10, gone with the wind. Um, we need to remember that, that glossing over the, the hardships of slavery and, and reconstruction, that's no small crime. In fact, it's pretty dangerous, even if it's very, very lucrative. Acknowledging the reality is, is part of our collective national history. I think that because of how incredibly popular this movie has been, how very emotionally um, uh, powerful it is, and, and this incredibly dramatically compelling stories, Gone with the Wind really has done more to keep the memory of the Civil War alive and shape its memory than, than any other history book or event since Appomattox. Many, many people got their introduction to the Civil War through seeing Gone with the Wind, became interested, you know, even if you have one person who sees Gone with the Wind and then wants to read more about the Civil War, um, that's important. Um, 
And really the reality is people worldwide, however incorrectly, think Gone with the Wind is the true story of the Old South and how it was changed by the Civil War. When Americans picture the Old South, this is what they will often picture. A false front, white columned house that is um, just a movie set with a British woman in an impossibly huge hoop skirt standing in front of trees made out of telephone poles. For a lot of people, that's the South during the Civil War. So, thank you all so much. The most common question they got was, where is Tara and is it open for tours, right? And then, and then what was the other one? Um, where are Scarlet and Rhett buried and are they buried next to each other? Um, no. Margaret Mitchell was very concerned that people not think Tara was a real place. So she drew on Clayton County, she drew on what she knew about the topography and the landmarks, but she was very careful that it could not be identified as a specific place. So other than saying it's in Clayton County, Georgia, um, very close to Jonesboro, it does, yeah, you really can't. Right, yes, exactly. Um, she did not want people to accuse her of using a place. Yeah, which doesn't stop people from... I know. Yeah, and, right. Yeah, I, I don't think they would have worried about that, you know, really. It's so Hollywood, isn't it, you know? Yeah, I know, I know, right. Remember the movie when Harry met Sally and, and they're driving away from the University of Chicago, out of Chicago, and they're driving, like, from... Evanston, you know? Like, yeah, I think it's one of those things that Hollywood it just doesn't, they just don't, don't bother, they don't worry about that. That would be my guess. Other things? Or other story? Other good trivia? observation, you talk about how people identify this movie with the history of the Civil War. Yeah. I think novels would be very much that way. I think if you're teaching history of the 30s, you got to read all the things, man. Mm -hmm. Well, yes, talking about reading novels as a way to understand a time period. In a lot of ways, this picture tells us possibly more about the 1930s than it does about the 1860s and 1870s. Um, certainly about, um, uh, you know, that, that kind of, I mean, we always draw on our own obsessions in movies, right? You know, I mean, it's not a mistake that a lot of movies about, um, you know, genetic mutations started popping up in the 50s and 60s. You know, it's whatever our collective um, fears and, and, you know, hopes and, you know, obsessions are, are often what we write about. So you're right, yeah, there is a real use of books and movies as a way to read that. Yeah. 
You made mention that it didn't appear on television until 1976. Mm -hmm. And why was there such a delay that the movie did not appear on television until 1976? Uh, the main reason, um, and I don't have the figures, money. Um, because David O. Selznick sold the rights. He, he went bankrupt, you know, by the... the mid-40s, I think, uh, Selznick International was out of business. Um, they were eventually acquired by MGM, and MGM re-released this picture every four to five years in the 40s, 50s, 60s, um, and did extremely well almost every time. And they re-released it, and then they would cut it. It was ridiculous, and some of the things are gone now, the cuts that they made. Um, I think it was only in 76 that it was financially uh, more lucrative to release it on television than to release it um, uh, to the movie theaters. Mm -hmm. I don't think it had, I mean, they might have argued, and, and again, this is a guess, they might have argued that it was for artistic reasons, you know, it's a big screen thing, but I think it, it, it um, usually, it, it, you, you go where the money is. Um, Nonetheless, um, there, it is a great experience that so many people were able to experience this movie on the big screen. Has anyone here seen it on a big screen? Yeah. I did. Um, uh, did you see it outdoors? Wow, fabulous. Yeah, as a big epic, um, there is something valuable about seeing it on a big screen. Someone, um, I was reading an interview with a guy, who was it? It was a collector of Gone with the Wind memorabilia, and he said when it came out, when he was a kid in the movie theater, his mother loved it. So she put him on a streetcar and she said, go to the theater, watch the movie and come home and then tell me what you think. So he came home and he said, well, it was really good. I liked the opening. It was really pretty in these big houses. And then, and then the war came and everyone was sad. And then it ends with this lady like screaming in a field. It was a weird ending. <laughs> she said, said, you left an intermission. And she made him go home, go back the next day and watch the whole thing. <laughs> Just your very personal insight. Did Scarlet and Rhett get back together ah. or did they go their separate ways? <laughs> My personal question, did Scarlet and Rhett ever get back together? Well, I'll, I'll answer it this way. Margaret Mitchell got that question probably more than any oh, yes. other question. And, and she always said, I have absolutely no idea. I actually like that answer because I think with works of fiction, part of the power of them is what anyone can use their imagination to fill in what they want to happen. Um, so, you know, whatever I personally would have wanted to happen, I, I don't think that they worked as a couple. I think, you know, he maybe found someone who was less difficult and, you know, fulfilled his dream of being a father. He was a great father. Um, but, but, but it's better that we don't know because it leaves it open for everybody. Um, I kind of like that open-endedness. Mm-hmm. I didn't happen to read it, but I believe somebody wrote a sequel. Yes, yes, there was a sequel authorized by the Margaret Mitchell estate. Margaret Mitchell and her estate are very 
protective of this, of the book particularly. Uh, she actually set new precedents for international copyright because she went after anyone who tried to sell her book elsewhere without her permission. But um, they did authorize this sequel called Scarlet. What year was it? It was in the 80s? Late 80s? Early 90s? Something like that? Um, and it was pretty generally concluded to be pretty awful. Um, Alexandra Ripley wrote it. Um, there was another one too, but I can't remember if it was authorized or not. But telling that it's never been remade, right? So you can think about, we can leave you with the question of who would you cast in the main roles if you were making it today. We were trying to figure that out over dinner, who we would cast. Um, yeah. That's right. That's right. Who played Scarlet in the movie version of Scarlet? Timothy Dalton played Rhett Butler in the the. It was a it was a mini series, right? Version of Scarlet or made for TV movie? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're like a lot of people. <laughs> Frankly, we don't give a damn. Frankly, we just don't give a damn. Um, which is a good, which maybe is a good way to end. American Film Institute has a list of its top 100 all-time movie quotes, and number one on its list. Frankly, my dear, I just don't give a damn. So there's the power of the movie right there. So thank you all so much.